Hey, good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Hope you had a great weekend. Go Vols. Go Vols. <laughs> Welcome to Legacy if you've not been here before. If you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 7. While you're turning there, just a couple quick announcements for you and for those of you watching at home or from home. And that is that we now have uh, kids' community between four and six. So if you have kids that are between four and six, we have enough of our volunteers back at this point where we can do a really good job of working with your children. So they're available back there. But what we're going to ask is what we normally did even before COVID, and that's that you go and get your kids before worship at the end. Um, so they can experience worship with you. And then I was told that by the end of October, right before November, we should have our 7 to 10 class back again, which is a big deal. We have a lot of folks that aren't here because their kids are right in that, that mysterious bandwidth um, of 7 to 10. It's hard to bring kids at that age because we're all afraid they're going to lick everything and, and lick each other. And so we don't have anything for them, but we, we should have that back before November. So if you have kids at that age, make sure that we do before you bring them, but we'll probably send you an email. And then also, big announcement, and that is that on October 18th, we have our church's ninth birthday from the day that we launched, right? So our ninth big birthday. I brought this up last week. One of the biggest traditions we have is a massive chili cook-off with as many entries as we can get. So we're encouraging you to RSVP online for this and let us know if you're bringing a chili. It is on, under events on our website. Um, and we would love to know, A, that you're coming, and then B, if you're bringing a chili. And this year, we're going to join it with our field day. Now, we did field day last year in July. I was on sabbatical. I wasn't a part of it, but I heard it was awesome. And it sounds awesome because it had competition, winners, and losers, right? So I'm already all in. Um, but it's a blast. Got a lot of great feedback. So what we're going to do this year in the year of COVID, we're going to marry the two together. We're going to have our field day for a little bit, and then we're going to slip into a chili cook-off, not in the opposite order so we don't all furp up all over the field. We're going to play and then eat a bunch of chili. Um, so listen, take that seriously. That's a great moment for us as a church. It's a big rhythm for us to celebrate, not just the fact that we're a year older, but to actually reflect on all the great things God has done, right? I mean, I get it. It's been a tough year. But God has done some really cool things. We're adding nine partners to our church. We've started another missional community, about to start another one. We're looking at adding pastors to this church. We, we are experiencing some depth and some healthy things, and I'm excited about it. I think when we look back, we'll remember that COVID was a really big deal. It made things very difficult for the rhythms of a church. I'm not sad about a lot of things I'm seeing, though. I'm excited about some of the things I'm seeing. So we're going to celebrate that during the chili cook-off. I would love to have you be a part of it. Um, last little bit is if you want to connect um, or you want to be connected to a missional community, we don't have any of our cards, what we call our connect cards, laying around for obvious reasons, but you could text our number up here, 865-484-6086, and if you just text the word connect to that, we will get in touch with you today and kind of lead you through the connection process. There's an online digital connect card um, that if you fill that out, we'll have your information. We will contact you, ask you how we could be of great help to you, see how we can connect you in a way that makes sense for you at this time. So just want to put that out there for you as well. Ecclesiastes 7. Listen, as I said, it's been a tough year. We're all a little bit sick of hearing about how the virus has changed life. 
There are phrases now that you're sick of hearing that you didn't even know existed in January, like social distancing. Hasn't it felt like you've known for years what that is? You haven't. Or, or how about out of an abundance of caution? Anyone sick of hearing that phrase? <laughs> I am. I'm tired of Zoom. I'm tired of sanitizer. I've become a connoisseur of which sanitizers are going to evaporate quickly. Those are the ones I like. I don't like the ones that hang around on your hands for 10 minutes, right? I don't like those. But I know the difference between the two now. I didn't a few years ago. I'm tired of walking into restaurants and seeing chairs stacked up on the tables because of limited indoor seating. I'm tired of no salad bars. I'm tired of walking all the way to the front door of a place and then having to go back to my truck because I forgot my mask. I do that every day, all the time. I'm tired of people arguing over when a vaccine will come. I'm tired of the politics of it all. I'm very tired of the inconvenience of it all. I'm tired of the drama of it all. One thing I'm not tired of is just that it's provoking so many of us in such an altered state, in altered rhythms, in an altered kind of reality. It's forcing us to ask the why in our life. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing it the way I'm doing it? Is this what I wanted for my life? We're asking those questions a little bit more than we typically do, which is why we took a nosedive straight into this book of Ecclesiastes. That's why we chose to do it when we did it. We call this getting perspective. Right? And the more perspective you have, the healthier you're going to be, right? Perspective resizes us. That's why. The healthiest moments of clarity that you are going to have are the ones that show you that you are actually not as big as you originally thought you were, but you were smaller. See, we, we live in a culture that says the healthiest thing for you is for you to grow in size, for you to be bigger, for you to be unlocked, for you to be actualized, for you to be in the center, for you to be glorious, for you to be in the middle. That's the culture we live in. But the Bible leads us in another direction entirely, where we live before one who is glorious, where we bow before one who is central, who is big, who is unlocked, who is unlimited. You see, when we gain perspective, God gains his rightful size, and that means you do too. You are sized correctly. But, and you've been around people where they are big in their own eyes, but when you are big in your own eyes, God cannot be. It doesn't work that way. When we see our finitude before an infinite God, our worship increases. Our, our thankfulness gains in depth. Our prayers sound different, totally different. When God grows and we shrink, Anxiety shrinks as well. Fear leaves. You see how perspective matters? Perspective is important. See, we've been looking at this thing called life under the sun, which is the name of this series, but we named the series that because it's a phrase that's kind of peppered and threads its way throughout the whole corpus, the whole work of Ecclesiastes. And what life under the sun is, is a life where God does not exist, and there's no real ultimate meaning to be gained from God himself, so we have to get it from the stuff that's laying around work and sex and money and achievements and power. We just have to get it from creation instead of the creator. So life under the sun, we end up being the central hero of our own motion picture, right? Complete with the soundtrack as we look for hunting and for meaning. We want to be centered. God is not in our film because there's no room for him. That's the predominant narrative today. And you'd think I was talking about the world. I'm talking about the church there. 
Jim Henson says it this way. He says, life's like a movie. Write your own ending, keep believing, keep pretending. But you see, the gospel shows up, and it tells us we've been telling the wrong story this whole time. I mean, when the gospel met me, the first thing I realized is I've been telling the wrong story with the wrong central character, with the wrong meaning and the wrong purpose. This is why, by the way, we named the church Legacy Church. Some of you already know this because I've already spoken on it from time to time. A legacy is just a treasure or a story that is handed from one generation to another. It's a story of value. It's a robust story, the one that we want to leave, where we are not the hero, but we follow one. We are not the center, but we bow before one who is. We're heroic, but our heroism even is shaped in the shape of Christ, who is our ultimate hero. I mean, the best part about your story is that God's story is in it. God's story is the best part about anything about us. We believe this as a church. So what Solomon's going to do in our passage today is he's going to confront our legacy, the story that we leave from our generation to the next. And he's going to provoke you with one big question, and you will see it in this passage. Are you wasting your life? You just have one, one life. Are you wasting it? And listen, don't confuse the question with, are you being productive in this life? Are you being impressive? Are you being busy? Are you entrepreneurial in this life? That's not what he's asking because you can be very productive and still be wasting your life, right? In fact, the well-invested life, the best-spent life probably won't impress the world very much at all. This is how Christ says it in Matthew 16. Stay where you're at. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So Christ has in mind here a man who has gained everything that this world calls special. He's found ultimate meaning in this life under the sun, allegedly. And yet he spent his own soul to get it. You can gain the entire world and everything that this life under the sun calls special and you could still waste your life. See, Solomon is going to be turning a corner today. The literature changes. He's been, and you've seen it for several chapters, complaining. <laughs> he's been complaining and lamenting, a lot of laments, a lot of arguing, and now he's switching to bringing Proverbs. A little bit of Proverbs. Proverbs, I don't know about you, they kind of bug me. I can read them in small bits. I can't read a lot of Proverbs because they're so disjointed. I feel like I'm listening to someone who gets distracted a bunch. You ever get that feeling? You ever have a conversation with somebody and they're putting down good things, good little nuggets, but then they get a phone call or a text or a squirrel runs by and then they come back and they're like, what was I saying? It doesn't matter. Anyway, and they go in a totally different direction. That's the way Proverbs feels for me. I feel like it's a lot of good content, not always strung together thematically. But that's the gear he's shifting into. So just fair warning, this is more proverbial. But he is still going to compare the wise person with the fool, and we were going to still see what life under the sun looks like. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 7. This is the word of the Lord for us. And I think Christ is going to be more clear, crystal clear through a passage even like this, because Jesus is the hero of even this passage. And it says this. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow, he says, is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth just means amusement and laughter. 
It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Okay, it's a tricky passage, you know, because he's saying some things that you're waiting for a punchline and he doesn't give it. Like the day of death is better than the day of birth. You're almost waiting for him to qualify that, and he doesn't. He doubles down. The house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. Did y'all catch that? Sorrow is better than laughter. This is what he's saying. He's saying exactly what it sounds like he's saying. Hey, you know what's better than being born? Dying. That's what he's saying right now. And the main idea is in times of joy and feasting and laughter, we don't wisely consider or weigh or contemplate our life. We don't. And you know that. When my kids were born, um, I was excited. I was in tears. I was dreaming of their future with no limits and no boundaries, a lot of laughter, a lot of feasting. I wasn't thinking about the end. I wasn't contemplating funerals in that moment. I wasn't looking at what they would be when they're 90 years old or 100 years old. I wasn't pondering those things. That would be weird. It'd feel out of place. The same thing when you have a great meal with great friends and you're talking about great old stories and you're laughing, belly laughing, you know, and you're just reminiscing and you're just drinking in the moment. Nobody stops and says, hey, what about this funeral thing? How are we all going to work that out in the very end? Anyone been thinking about that? I've been thinking about that. Unless you're a weirdo, you don't do that, right? Fives on the Enneagram do that sometimes, right? If you're a five, I love you. <laughs> Laughter and feasting, not the time for a deep audit on the end of all ends. These are times to be joyful. That's why he says at the very end, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Because God has given us those moments to enjoy, to love them. And when you enjoy good moments, when you drink deep and you laugh and you celebrate and you feast, you can do it to the glory of God. Because what you're doing is an echo and an image and a nuance of a greater gift where God gave us Jesus. When you listen to a good song, you admire a great painting. When you have a great moment, you climb a great trail. When you have these great moments, that joy that you feel glorifies God. And it's just an image of a good gift giver giving us himself. So we're supposed to. But then Luke, why is death and mourning elevated so much? It's because of this. It provokes us to consider our life's edges, our finitude. And it allows us to recalibrate. That's what he means when he says, lay it to heart. He's talking about us considering it, weighing it, thinking it through. When faced with death and sorrow and mourning, 
lay it to heart. He says that's what the wise do. They lay it to heart. You know, in our last church, I was a pastor in Tampa Bay for a little while, and I was on call, kind of informally on call for a funeral home. We had a person that went to the church who was a former pastor, and he ran a funeral home. He was great at his job, but every once in a while, he needed a little bit of help. He needed someone to pitch in. So I remember cruising northbound on I-75, and I got a phone call. He's like, listen, there's a family by a graveside right now, and I've got no pastor to go over there. They don't have anyone to talk to them. They're there right now. I was just wondering if you can just step in and talk to them. And I didn't have anything prepared. I'm not ready for that. I wasn't dressed for it, obviously. But I said, yeah. So I pulled in, went up there, didn't even know their name, so that's kind of awkward. I mean, it's literally at a graveside, you know, the tent up, freshly dug earth. I'm asking their names. I ask about a funny story that they had about this guy who had just died. Uh, I ministered a little bit, pastored a little bit, prayed with them, and then that was it. Never saw him again. The whole thing took about 35 minutes. Right? And then I get in the car. And I had this moment in this house of mourning, as Solomon would call it. And I thought, is that how this guy saw everything coming to an end? Is this what he thought when he was a teenager it would look like? When he was in his 30s, did he envision some awkward young man, unprepared and undressed who didn't know my family, coming to my gravesite and just kind of tumbling over his words while my, my widow was weeping with my only daughter and no one else was there on the side of I-75? Is this the way he saw it all going down? What if he did? What if he had 10 years back a picture of what it was going to look like? Would, it, would he recalculate his life? Would he be wiser? Would he be wiser if he thought it through? Would it change the way he lived? You see, before I headed to this house of mourning, we'll call it that, I wasn't even thinking on this level. I mean, as soon as I hung the phone up, I'm like, okay, passages on funerals, where am I at? I'm going through my, my memory Rolodex. What do I have? Because I have no time to get ready for this, so I, and I can't just make stuff up. So i got to show up. i got to be a little bit prepared. I wasn't even thinking on this level. And when I got back in the car, I realized how flighty my life was cruising into that funeral. The dumbest things had my attention. Fleeting things grabbed my heart. I was going from one insignificant thought to the next insignificant thought. And then when I got back in the car, I realized, man, is that how my life is going to end? Is that how it's going to look for me? I mean, it's going to be soon enough. I mean, not tomorrow, likely not next year, maybe not even in 10 years. But soon enough, I'm going to be in the ground. Soon enough, that's me. This is what John Piper says in a devotional he has called Life as a Vapor. He says, when I think on these things, and it's the things we're talking about right now, he says, it makes me tremble at the prospect of living a trivial, self-serving, comfortable, middle-class, ordinary, untroubled American life. I can't keep eternity out of my mind. Life is short, and eternity is long, very long. It's a long time to regret a wasted life. I'm with Piper. I cannot keep eternity out of my mind. I can't. I can't. Unless I flush it out with mirth, as he calls it. Amusement, distraction, laughter, feast, celebration, anything, anything but the pain of the moment. You see, laying our lives to heart and placing eternity in the mind, as he says here, it forces us to audit ourselves. And we don't like to do that very much because it's painful. 
It hurts. It's why I'm so quick to be a clown in these moments. When I find myself in heavy moments, I use jokes to kind of lift the mood. And they do. It lifts the mood. It also lifts the reflection right out of the room. Maybe you're like this too, right? Don't, don't allow a heavy moment to stay heavy for a moment. We like to speak into the silence because pondering the end of things it just feels too grotesque. We just want to escape just the pressure, the heaviness, the darkness of the moment. And so listen, there's nothing wrong with laughter and celebration. We just got done looking at that. There's nothing wrong with laughter and celebration unless, unless it's the tool of escaping the reality of eternity. Then it's wrong. This is how he said it in Ecclesiastes 3. We looked at this a couple months ago where our preacher here in Solomon says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And what we looked at in that sermon, and you can always go back and listen to it again, is that God set these moments in according to his brilliance and his creativity and his sovereign insight. That we would have a time to laugh, but then a time to mourn. There's a purpose in it. A time to dance for sure. A time to weep, absolutely. The wise will take the heavy moments that we get in this life under the sun. We'll take the heavy moments and lay them to heart, and we will consider them in the context of eternity eternity. But we do this in a culture that sees no use for death. Our culture doesn't have any idea that there's any purpose behind adversity. No use for sorrow. So we're groomed as we come from the womb to just escape those moments at all costs, right? Listen, several years ago when my dad passed away, I got to spend the last several days with him in the hospital. He had stopped communicating by then. I did not. I blessed him. I thanked him where it made sense, where it was acceptable. He was laying things to heart. He was weighing a life lived. I wanted him to know that he ran a hard race, that he built a great family, that I saw Christ in him through my older years. Sitting there with all the tubes and the digital displays and the beeping and the cafeteria meals sitting on the the tray that didn't get eaten, sitting there caused me to look at life a little differently. Perspective came. It's the kind of perspective that comes expensively. <laughs> this guy that I saw strong and courageous and loud and adventurous had been reduced to a shell at the end of his ends. And friends, I wanted to escape that so badly. Any mirth would have done. Any distraction would have been welcome. Anything but consider that the death that is finding him would find me, would find my kids and my grandkids. I knew that someday I'll have my own tubes and beeps and digital displays. And one day, too, I would be in a service and whoever could afford a plane ticket or could get off of work would come and fill a room called my funeral and someone would get up and eulogize me. It's tough to think about those things. Some of you are like, gosh, Luke, are you okay? Are you all right right now? I am, and this is why. I know where I'm going, and I'm not going to waste this life. I know where I'm going, and I'm not going to waste this life. I'm not going to amuse myself to death, but I'm going to seize every moment I can possibly to the glory of God. Living a life where I'm not the star, and I'm not the hero, and nothing orbits me, but I'm a big character in a bigger story, a legacy that is worth leaving, where God, my hero, my king, is the centerpiece of the legacy I want to leave to my kids. I tremble at the idea of a safe and forgettable wasted life. 
living this self-serving, ordinary comfort. I can't keep eternity out of my mind. I know where I am. I know where I'm going. I know the king who will carry me there. And that changes everything. That changes everything. This is the opposite of how you and I grow up. We have to work really hard to get to this place, don't we? We we live in this life under the sun, and that's just not what we're used to hearing or thinking about. Our circuit boards are wired a little differently. My circuit board is wired to be just like yours. It's to love the same stuff that the world loves. It's to want the same thing that the world wants. I'm wired to want to fit in everywhere I go. I'm wired to be adored, to be loved by everybody. That's the way I'm wired. I'm factory set to forget that I'm a pilgrim, that this isn't even my home. I'm, I'm, I'm wired to forget that the gospel is actually enough and is sufficient, that my neighbors are perishing and have no Holy Spirit in them. I'm preloaded to forget that my enemy is real and he hates me, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy, and he's prowling even today. I forget this. I'm, I'm wired to forget that the battle is real, that this life is a vapor. I don't want to think about death or suffering or evangelism or world missions. I don't want to weigh and lay things to heart. I don't want to consider the cost of a Christian life. I would much rather medicate myself with any amusing distraction or mirth that I could possibly find. I'm thankful for friends who won't let me do this too. I'm thankful for friends who will remind me that I am supposed to have a wartime footing, right? That I won't waste my life. This is what he means, by the way, in verse 5, if you were curious. He said, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Randy spoke on this a few weeks ago. Let me ask you this question. Are you wasting your life? Are you wasting it? Do you take the mourning and the sorrow and even the death around you and lay it to your heart? And if you do, is it changing the way you live? Is it changing you? I know at the surface, it sounds unhealthy to soak in these moments of sorrow and then let them shape your future. And I guess it can be. It can be if that's where we stop, right? If we stop where he has stopped, if this is where our thoughts end. But Solomon did not have the gospel as we have it. He didn't have a picture or an emblem of an empty tomb to come in and kind of rewire his thinking here to edit this proverb. But we're a people where the end is better than the beginning because the end is our beginning. Our legacy is different because we have the story of this king who Isaiah calls a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As he approaches this cross of devastation, in his day of adversity, he did not escape it. He did not look for distractions. But like a wise man, he laid it to heart, even though that that would break his heart. He laid it to heart, and he did that for you and for me. And when he did that, he brought the thunder of God's spirit down upon death itself. And he put death itself in the grave. And the same Holy Spirit he gives to you and to me to live an abundant life here and forevermore. And this changes everything. It changes sorrow. It changes death and pain and mourning. It doesn't make it happy, but it puts it in context. And that's more important. That it puts it in context. Again, perspective matters. The world knows how we die, but it doesn't know why we die. 
The world knows the biology and the chemistry and the physics behind how the human body dies. But it doesn't know why we die. So death is just out of context. It's a foreign invader, an unwelcome one that is meaningless. But you and I, we know why we die. It says this in Genesis 2. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So death came by sin. That's the why behind funerals and COVID and hurricanes and genocides. That's the why. Adam and Eve in the garden. They changed their diet. They had the fruit from every good and beautiful and perfect tree in the garden except for one. And when they changed their diet, the collapse of mankind and the collapse of all creation swooped in quickly. Friends, you were meant to live forever. We were meant to never taste death. Now, death waits for everybody. And we can't escape it. But we can consider it. And then we can celebrate that for those in Christ... Death is not our full stop. It's just the end, which is really our beginning. A new beginning with no end. Because our man of sorrows, he bursts from the tomb and he gives us hope. And it changes what death looks like. And when death changes, it changes life. You can live a life differently. This is what he says to his protege in Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. You can stay where you're at. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Sounds like a guy who's laying things to heart. Beeps and tubes and displays. He knows he's closing in on the end. And he says, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord. The righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here's a man. This is great. Here's a man who allowed the end of his life to inspire the content of his life. He allowed the death to speak into how he would live his life. He knew that this life is just prologue to a much bigger book that hadn't even started yet. And he wasn't going to waste it. Wasn't going to waste it. That's why we catch him saying to another church totally, listen, I'm fine staying. I'm fine going. I'll probably stay because it's more helpful for you. But whatever glorifies God the most, I'm happy with either. Right? Same guy. Why can he be like this? Because he understood his life wasn't his. Not his life. He's spending the life that another owned. He knew that it belonged to the Lord. And this is where you and I can repent. As we listen to a passage like this in a 3,000-year-old text, we could repent here. Because you and I, we show ourselves sinful and rebellious whenever we treat this life as one that belongs to us. And we start throwing rocks at God anytime mourning or sorrow or death come close. Anytime adversity comes, we shake our fist. We're shocked that God would be so greedy and so obtuse that he would allow this to come close to us. But Genesis says, don't be shocked. And the empty tomb says, don't be scared. You know, one thing I've always said is I feel like we do funerals wrong in our culture, especially the church. I think we wait too long to eulogize people. I think you should tell people great things about themselves while they're still living, right? Let's not wait till they're dead and stuffed away and they can't hear you. Eulogize the living. It's, it's fun. It's called encouragement. So I think we should eulogize the living. 
But then also, I think we should all write our own funeral service. Don't pay a professional like me to come up and do that. I don't even know you all that well, right? That's what we do. We get pastors to come up and do it. I'm not against pastors being at funerals. Don't carry that away. But I think you should write your own funeral service. I started writing mine (laughs) in true preacher form, right? Always going to get the last word on my last sermon. But I started writing mine. And here's a piece of it. I'm still working on it because I'm not dead yet. And it's don't be sad for me. Don't be sad for me because I married the love of my life. Don't shed a tear for me because I preach the gospel to hearts and I watch them receive God before my very eyes. Don't be sad for me because I got to renew my parents' vows. I got to baptize my kids. Don't shed any tears for me because I got to officiate over 20 weddings and celebrate that. I got to go to a dance recital. I got to see my son's first 5K. Don't shed any tears for me. I've been to two college football bowl games. I've gone swimming in multiple oceans. I've climbed multiple mountains. I've eaten the best barbecue in the world. I've eaten the best enchiladas in the world, and I did it on the same day. Don't shed a tear for me because I've delivered a child and I've buried a father. I've laughed so hard I was nauseous for two hours. Don't cry for me because I watched my kids grow and flourish. I got to be a part of starting multiple churches with some really cool people. I got to make some lifelong friends. Don't be sad for me because I got to ride a prop plane out of Haiti, got to help pull some teeth in Guatemala, build homes in Honduras and Mexico and Houston and New Orleans. I got to see a couple miracles along the way. Don't be sad for me because I got to see some of the more beautiful places in this world and yet still the most beautiful place be the one I call home. I got to lead legacy. Don't be sad for me because I'm before my king now and I can see glory and I'm home and I'm fine and I ran the race and I won the prize. And by God's grace, I'll see you soon. You should write your own funeral service. Because listen, if something happens to me and God pulls me out of the game before I get to see the last half of it all, God has done me no harm. (laughs) He's done me no harm. Look at what God has let me do. Look at just a piece of what I got to experience in this lifetime. My family doesn't belong to me. This church doesn't belong to me. My time, my body, this life doesn't belong to me. And when I forget this, I'm thankful that I have friends that remind me. Because any other view than this is idolatry and it belongs to fools. This is what our preacher in Solomon is saying. It's idolatry. It requires repentance when we shake our fist at God because we mourn and feel loss. We see him as a thief who has stolen something from us. Not the case. Not the case. Listen, I don't know where I find you today, whether you're joyful or sorrowful. But better is the beginning than the end. But better is our end than our beginning. Right? Because our king has defeated death. Death is in the grave. Life is yours. And it's abundant. And when you die, if you are in Christ, you will blink your eyes and you will open your eyes. And you will behold glory before you. And you will say in your heart of hearts, don't be sad for me. Don't be sad for me. If I could come back, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, and let that fact 
recalculate and redevelop how you live this life now. This life. And tremble at the thought of living a safe and predictable life, a forgettable life, a complacent one, a safe one. Don't waste this life. It's a vapor. And then it's gone. It's prologue to an eternity. Amen? Go ahead and stand with me and I'm going to pray with you. We're going to take communion together as a church. This is something we've been doing since June. Typically our rhythm for communion has been a little bit different. We're just adapting right now. So if we have somebody that can go and grab those trays, do we have anyone that can do that real quick? Run back there. Anybody? Let me see. I don't know who's doing it. Either five people are getting them or no one's getting them. It's hard to tell from here. But what we have is we have these little rip and sip cups because we're not really dipping bread and juice anymore right now. Um, And so when we take this, you're going to want to peel back the top thin little clear layer and then that will be the bread, and then the rest is juice. If you do it the opposite, you'll never, ever get that cracker until Jesus comes back, and you'll have a lap full of juice, okay? So the clear one first, bread first. There it comes. Thank you so much. Gosh, you guys are awesome. Raise your hand if you don't have one of these, and they will bring one to you. Awesome. Listen, and as we take this, Christ says to do this in a deep and thoughtful remembrance of him. And what we do is we remember who he was and what he did and what that means for us and how it calls us to repent and how it calls us to change. It's all kind of bundled together in this beautiful moment that we call communion. So if you're a Christian, we, we invite you into this moment. If you're not a Christian and you're just kind of a skeptic or maybe you're just kind of searching and you're looking just trying to figure things out, don't worry about this. You can stick it back in your pocket. You can throw it away on the way out the door. Just, I invite you to consider Christ. Investing your life, not into this moment, but investing your life into a king that runs a kingdom and he's building a family. Because one of the things that this emblems for us, for you and me, is that there is a banqueting table waiting for us and there's a chair with your name on it and you'll never lose it. And that's what this is also pointing to. But another thing it's pointing to is this is the symbol of the death of death. Death itself is in the grave. And it has no real sting. So when we take communion, we're celebrating the fact that that is true for you and me. So Father, we thank you for destroying death. The first Adam came and carried death into creation. You came and you renewed creation by giving your own life. And even in that, you look at us and you say, don't cry for me. Don't shed a tear for me. Don't be sad for me. It's the joy of the Lord that I pursued this cross. That's what you tell us. It was for the joy set before you that you had your body broken and cracked. And the very heart that you laid wisdom to was broken before all of creation to see. And so when we take this bread, we take it in remembrance of you. And then this cup is a memorial and a symbol of the blood of Christ. And Father, we even take this in remembrance of you. And the fact that our end is better than our beginning. That this is just a small vapor. That as eternity rolls forward, we will have so much glory before us 
who will scarcely remember the mourning and the sorrow. And the things that we do remember will be eclipsed by the joy and the deep thankfulness and the content peace. That all that was wrong has been made right and all that was upside down has been made correct. For when you died on that cross, you didn't just fix us, you fixed all the cosmos. And one day you will come back and you will finish it all right before our eyes. We will get to see the whole thing. So we celebrate that. That is what your blood purchased for us. So it's in that that we take the juice. So Father, we repent where we need to repent. For living this life under the sun as if we own everything. For treating this world as if it's all there really is. We repent. We turn towards you. And we say, give us perspective. By your Holy Spirit, that you would give us perspective. That we would look and see not just what mourning and sorrow has taken away, but we would see and savor the good gifts that you've given us in this place. Father, you are so good and you are so kind and you are so thoughtful and so generous, so considerate, so strong, so wise, so brilliant, so courageous, so heroic. Lord, we celebrate you in this moment as the centerpiece of our best story, the story that we would tell with our lives and with our dying breaths. And Father, if there's anyone in here that you are after their hearts, or anyone who is far from you, I pray that this would be a moment, Lord, that you would draw them near. That you'd pull them tight, call them your own, ruin them from any taste of this world. Stretch them in such a way that they can't go back to the original shape. Give them a heart that feels, not an unresponding heart. We pray that salvation would happen today. Lord, you're so good that you do that. You do it right before our very eyes. Thank you for your work. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this church. So Lord, as we worship you, move among us with the power of your spirit. Amen.